Alright everybody, welcome to episode 5, this is episode 5 of NPC Talk. My name is Chris, and today we um, have a very special guest. Oh, wait, today's June 25th, 2015, and if you want to... If you want to check out my podcast um, right now and for now, you can check me out at incronaut.tumblr.com. That's I-N-C-R-O-N-A-U-T dot Tumblr.com. Uh, quality's a little low because they kind of force us into this like 10 megabyte limit, but um, we'll see We'll see what kind of changes um, we can go through since I plan on hosting my own website eventually. Um, so for today... We have another very special guest, a really good friend of mine, and a gamer in crime. Alex, how are you today? How's it going, buddy? It's going great on this end. Um, a lot of work, but you know, still got a time, still got to find time for games. Always, you can. Oh, yeah. Um, so, Alex, tell us a little bit about yourself as a gamer. How long have you been a gamer for? What kind of games do you like? Oh God! All right, I think I've been gaming since I was. Uh, probably 12 or 13, I want to say. Nice. Uh, I started on my Super NES, which I still have right here in my living room to this day. <laughs> um, started off on Mario and the Basics, and then when I finally got the chance, I went through PlayStation and GameCube, nice. um, playing a crap ton of first-person shooters, and then evolved from there to Halo on the Xbox, and now... Basically, any first-person shooter I can get my hands on, with the exception of Call of Duty. I know that's not a, <laughs> I know that seems way, way out there that I don't play Call of Duty. <laughs> I, I play a lot. I'm a huge fan of the, of the first-person shooter. Awesome, awesome. Well, uh, as you know on the show, uh, first-time guests, we like to interview them on their top three games. Are you ready, Alex? I've been ready. Yeah, I like it. All right, let's jump straight into it, Alex. Hit me with what you got. All right, starting at number three, I got to give props to World of Warcraft. World of Warcraft, oh man. As, as much as I hate that I was a junkie, I skipped classes in college, I pulled <laughs> all-nighters when expansions came out, and I'll even go more specific, I'll go World of Warcraft Burning Crusade. The first, Burning Crusade. first major expansion after Vanilla. It was... World of Warcraft in itself set the stage and the standard for MMOs. It, that is true. It, it, like, it was just when online gaming became a thing and you couldn't, you had to explain to people that you couldn't just pause the game, which really freaked people out. <laughs> um, and it totally tore away from that old visualization of people having LAN parties at their houses, like, Busting up their big CRTs into their t into their cars, bringing them over to their friends' houses so that they could play on multiple televisions. <laughs> yeah. So like it totally broke that mold mm. and allowed me to play. Like once I went to college in Northern California, it allowed me to play with my friends in Southern California, which was a big thing for me. And as you'll see as I go through the list, a big thing for me is like emotional attachment to the game as much as actual enjoyment. Mm. Um. And so it allowed me to stay connected with a bunch of my friends in Southern California, make new friends across the country that I ended up meeting 
uh, one year at BlizzCon, which was fucking awesome. Have you? You met some of your World of Warcraft friends in real life? Yeah, my friend, my best friend Evan, uh, mm-hmm. was our guild leader. Our guild was Milk and Honey, okay. and we ended up meeting a whole mess of those people at BlizzCon. It was absolutely unreal. That, that is awesome. Right? Um, and so World of Warcraft sort of like, it set, it set the mold. It allowed for the auction house. It allowed to be things to be sold. It first introduced me to that whole idea of grinding, which as much as you hated it, was necessary as part of the game. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. But the requirement of getting 40 people or 25 people, as it was in Burning Crusade, together to accomplish a single goal was absolutely amazing. Like, I can barely get four or five friends together on Destiny to do a raid and do it competently. <laughs> believe that I could get 25 people on World of Warcraft to do uh, Tempest Keep or Serpent Shrine, uh, Cavern, or uh, Black Temple, or High Jaw was absolutely nuts. Um, and aside from that, like, while Vanilla was great, there were only certain classes that were good at doing certain things. Mm. So, like, warriors were pretty much only good as tanks. Paladins were only good as healers because mm-hmm. they hadn't expanded upon... Like, everyone had their other specs, which were good for a few things, but there was really only one rating set, pretty much. Mm-hmm. And then when Burning Crusade came out, you could be anything in any class that you wanted to. Ah. Like, you, you saw Pally tanks come out for the first time. You saw... Uh, feral and boom chicken paladins that like topped DPS meters. Huh. Warlocks were insanely overpowered back then. I remember like warlocks were the bane of your existence if you were any other class in PvP. Um, they would just fear you and you'd dot it for days and you just die. It was horrible. <laughs> oh man. But yeah, World of Warcraft definitely like set the stage. I think for me to like for becoming a uh, more of a hardcore gamer because I started spending hours upon hours in raids. Like I had a raid schedule. Like it was bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I um I remember having a couple friends in high school um who couldn't hang out on certain nights of the week because of World of Warcraft. Yep, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday from <laughs> seven thirty to midnight. I was raiding. <laughs> and so uh, that's a uh, that's quite the dedication, you know. Oh, uh, it was bad. Like I like. I, I remember at a certain point, like, I was, I was missing some whole assignments. I skipped a lot of classes. Like, it, it, it took a serious shock for me to finally stop <laughs> <not> doing it. <laughs> That's crazy. Um, I can only imagine, like, the, the players who were full-time workers. I mean, 7.30 to midnight is pretty much all the free time you have on weekdays. And that, wasn't even, and that was 7.30 to midnight West Coast. We played on the East Coast server, too. Uh-huh. So these people were raiding from 10.30 until like 12.30 or 1 a.m. their time. Oh, my goodness. It was it was rough. Like, I couldn't believe that they agreed to raid West Coast Times. I was pretty shocked. <laughs> um, so tell me a little bit more about, I guess, uh, World of Warcraft in terms of um, its, like, graphics, gameplay, sound. Like, what do you think of it as, like, kind of like a game itself? Uh, as a game itself, I thought, you know, it, it gave you that third-person view of your character. It really mm-hmm. allowed you to... There, there was a whole world to explore. Like, it, and Burning Crusade unlocked an entire other section of the game. Mm. Like, the, the, the vanilla maps were big in itself, but Burning Crusade was the first major map expansion of the game. Mm-hmm. And really gave you 
a new level of freedom that you hadn't experienced before. You had flying mounts. Ah. You, you had uh, global PvP uh, in every single area that affected your experience gain or your reputation gain while doing things in that section of, of, uh, of Outland. Mm -hmm. um, the, and at the same time, not only did they give you a new map, but like you were saying about graphics, they really upped their game in terms of visual effects because before you would send off a fireball, it'd be this little itty bitty red speck on your <laughs> on your character, you know, charge it up like a Kamehameha and then just sort of shoot it out a little bit and then it was gone. <laughs> but when Burning Crusade came out, they really put a lot of extra effort into casting animations mm. and what your character did while they cast it and the actual animation of the firebolt or the frostbolt or, you know, whatever the skill was as it made its way towards your enemy. Nice. Um, so they really did a great job of, of changing that and putting more effort into casting animation, which, like, for me, when I first started the game, I played, I, I, I made a troll because, you know, it was, out of all the things I saw, it looked the best, mm -hmm. but it had the most boring casting animation of all time. <laughs> so I constantly had these noggin foggers in my inventory of like, you know, stacks of like hundreds of them to just constantly drink every 10 minutes so that I'd become a skeleton and cast like an undead character. <laughs> and like every time you died, you had to re you had to drink another one. And I did it every fucking time because I hated <laughs> the troll casting animations. So, That's a thing you can turn into an undead character. Yeah. You can, you can shift your, uh, your appearance. So like you can make yourself look like a, uh, there's the noggin foggers either made you look like a pirate or a skeleton. Um, there were like permanent items that you could equip that made you look like a, a, uh, a goblin or shit like that as the, as they came out later. That's um, ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, so pe people were really devoted if they didn't like whatever class they were before switching race was a, was a thing you could do. Mm -hmm. They really wanted to have like the cool casting animation. And before that you were just kind of stuck with what you had. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I thought the casting animation was like one of the biggest things for me that they ended up changing, and the and, and like I said, the skill trees really expanded and changed, mm. so that if you wanted to raid, you didn't have to be a fire mage, you didn't have to be a healing druid. You really had versatility and the option of doing what you wanted and still being a viable raid member. Mm, yeah, yeah. Because, like, you, in World of Warcraft, you had to apply to guilds. Like, you had to post an application on a website and then get interviewed and then go through, you know, go through an interview of running through an instance so they could check out your DPS. Like, it was oh, like, my goodness. It was like a job interview. <laughs> Did you yourself get interviewed? Uh, for, for the guild that I finished the game in, no, because my friend Evan was the guild leader, but I still had to, like, earn my keep. Um, <laughs> but... At one point when, like, in vanilla, um, as we transitioned to Burning Crusade, I applied to two different guilds and had to go through, like, interviews where they brought you into the raid to see how you did on the boss. Like, wow. that, was, that was a thing you had to do. It was ridiculous. That is intense. Yeah, it was absolutely nuts. But And that's why, like, towards the end of it, I was like, I'm, I'm, I graduated college. I have one job. I don't need a second one. <laughs> Um, yeah, so for, in terms of World of Warcraft, um, I just can't iterate enough what Alex was saying about World of Warcraft setting the precedent for MMORPGs. Um, even, like, MMOs today, you'll see old WoWers, um, 
try those MMOs out and they'll say like it's not exactly the same as WoW and they can't handle that sort of change. <laughs> oh yeah. Um WoW I think WoW did an an excellent job of setting the standard for like not only raids, which were probably the most popular and most awesome, but um WoW did a great job with um the PvP, uh like cat a little bit of like more end game casual stuff, but uh, WoW was mostly known for being hardcore, and that's really what attracted so many people. Um, you'll see games today like um, like Guild Wars Two or like the Knights of the Republic or the Star Wars one. Like even those that try new things and like uh, try all these like different features and things, but in at the end of the day, the core groundwork is just really similar to WoW and like, kind of based on the game itself, and it really did, like, set the bar high for what MMOs are capable of. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I I, I know we were, talk, we were talking about doing a, a Destiny episode later, like, and I played Destiny with my friend Evan, who was the guild leader, and mm-hmm. he'll tell you when we do it, a lot of the... the, the he's, he's lighter on the game than I am. I'm far more critical of Bungie and the horrible job they've done so far. Um, but... He'll tell you a lot of, you know, the things that you expect to see in an MMO, we expect because we were raised on them from World of Warcraft. Right. Um, And when you hear the term MMO, certain things are simply expected and ingrained because of of the precedent that they set. Yeah, yeah. It's very much true. Uh, People, it's, MMOs, um, in a sense, they're kind of dying. It's a little harder because uh, in today's era because of like how technology and how gaming kind of evolved like nowadays uh high school kids with a lot of time will rather play like league of legends or like mobas or counter-strike and something more competitive because online gaming is becoming more like of a mainstream thing and the the free-to-play or the free-to-play uh aspect style it's much more appealing to people nobody wants to do a pay-to-play game anymore because almost nobody has a monthly subscription fee anymore at all. Yeah, that's it's true. It's just a business model. Yeah, and so, um, yeah, it's hard for MMOs to, like, kind of cater to the crowd today. And so um, it's it's kind of funny because now the people who still love MMOs are people our age who grew up with World of Warcraft. But, uh, but people our age don't have <laughs> the time or commitment to... To be able to play MMOs, so it it's like a weird cycle. But uh, I mean, the the genre is still alive, but it's definitely changing in its own way. And Destiny is like a really great example of how MMOs are evolving. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right, World of Warcraft. Uh, never played it myself, but definitely a great game, Alex. Uh, what do you got next? All right, number two. Uh, this is the game that brought me into first-person shooters, um, or the first one that like really ingrained it. And the, the first first-person shooter I ever played was Rainbow Six Three on my original Xbox. Okay, while it was a great game, and I enjoyed the online aspect, the story was really lacking. Right. Um, and so what happened was my brother ended up. I. I Ended up having a play, an original PlayStation 1 for a while, um, and I couldn't stand the thing because the disc would always skip. I'd have to, like, smack the top of the damn thing to get it to, to, to get the game to catch and start playing. <laughs> um, and I remember one day I went to 
uh, I went to my friend's house and he had a GameCube and the graphics on the GameCube, at least in my opinion, blew PlayStation out of the water. Like, absolutely, completely did. Mm, yeah. uh, and I ended up buying a GameCube, and I had it for a long time, and then I ended up getting my Xbox and playing Rainbow Six, and then I went back to it, and I played Metroid Prime, mm. which is number two on my all-time list. Ooh. Metroid Prime was a resurgence of an amazing game series that was done well on NES and Super NES, but it was always done as a side-scroller. Right. And they shifted it to a first-person shooter with, in my opinion, some of the most groundbreaking graphics of that console generation. Uh. Like, I remember seeing the ship land on the planet and watching Samus Aran just emerge from the top of it and the the beauty in the landscape, like the water and the waterfalls was done absolutely beautifully. There were points where if your visor was exposed too much light, the character would reel back and you could see the reflection of Samus's face in her visor. What? That's awesome. Right. There were, there were certain areas where they had just like broken pipes that were leaking steam. And as you ran by them, they would fog up your visor and then it would slowly dissipate. It was like, it was those small attentions to detail mm -hmm. that really drew me in. And then the gameplay was, it was so different from any other first person shooter I had done because the way we know first person shooters now is a two joystick system, one for looking, one for moving. Right. Um, and this game was on GameCube, which had the C-stick. Which wasn't a which wasn't a second joystick so much as a uh, as a shortcut for using abilities. Yeah. Um, and it really required some some ingenuity and some some real work to get used to it. But once you did, the system worked really well. They had a great lock on system. They had the standard power beam with the charges. They brought in super missiles. And, you know, the, the original Metroid Prime was that standard mold of the game where you land on a planet, you've lost all your power-ups. You have to go get all your power-ups back. Mm -hmm. And even though it was a, even though it was a standard mold that you had seen before, doing it in the first person was so much different than anything you would ever experience in the franchise. Huh. It was, it was so much fun. Like, you got your hands on the ice beam and the plasma beam, and then uh, you got your super missiles, you got your morph ball, you got your spider track. Like, everything was... Every power-up changed the game in a new way. Mm -hmm. Not so much that you needed it to solve a puzzle, which you, of course, did, but it expanded the combat in every single area. So, like, in a game like that, you had to go back to old areas to... To find uh, to find these relics so that you could unlock Ridley for the last boss, um, and you had to go back through all the old areas in order to do that. Mm -hmm. And so the only way the only way to make it through some of those old areas was to use the new abilities you had found to get power ups, but also defeat enemies in new ways. So mm -hmm. not everything was repetitive as it was sometimes in an MMO like World of Warcraft. You could you could find new ways to kill things if you really wanted to. Right, right. Um, and and like I kind of said about a an emotional aspect for for the game, my brother and I like we hated each other up until he left for college and I was home alone. Mm -hmm. um, we just didn't get along for whatever reason. And then once he left and we saw each other less often, 
we found the things that we like to bond over and we made sure to make an effort to do those. Um, and what happened was he was a huge fan of the Metroid saga way before I was. Mm-hmm. And I would, he ended up buying me for, I think it was like my birthday or something. He ended up buying me the, the official guide. My brother is one of those guys that likes playing games with the guide. He, he likes to do that 100% completion. Thing. Nice. Yeah. Um, and so my brother would sit down in the game room with me. I would play, he would read the guide, advising me along the way, telling me like on certain enemies where you'd only have one chance to get a particular scan, otherwise you get 100% completion. (laughs) And if I I missed the scan, I had to commit suicide, go to the last save point, and then go through the whole thing again just to make sure we got that scan. Oh man, there are, um, so I... I haven't played the game yet. In fact, Alex has recommended the game to such an extent that he is making me, he's letting me borrow his games so that I will play it, um, which is number two on my queue after Bravely Default. Um, but I'll, I do know with that game, there are a ton of scans, so I can only imagine um, the difficulty of tr- scanning every single thing in the game. Yeah, and it's and if, if you don't know that it's coming, there are certain mobs that just sort of fly by the top of the map once and only once, and if you miss it, you never see it again in the game. Are you it, serious? It, it, it's one of them. Yeah, there, there are sections or um, certain bosses have phases that you go through, mm-hmm. and some of the phases fluctuate really quickly, and if you don't get the scan during that phase, you never see it again. Wow. And it never comes up. And... And the even better part about the scan is it wasn't sort of it wasn't just a novelty. It was a legitimate way to learn about the enemy you were fighting if it wasn't obvious what the weak point was. Right. I mean, uh, Metroid was was really good at sort of helping you to learn where the weak points were. Mm-hmm. But there were certain bosses where you needed to know that. Uh, I think on the very last boss, the actual Metroid Prime, you had to use a. I can't remember if it was the same or opposite element as the one that it was exposing. And if you didn't know that, you ended up feeding it health instead of taking it away. Which is where the scans really ended up coming into play. So it was good that it wasn't strictly just a a novelty. Right, right. We were actually, um, Uh, one of my friends, or our guest, uh, Roger, in episode number one, he... Uh, he said Super Super Metroid for the SNES was on his top three, and so we were kind of comparing it to Metroid Prime and how they're both like really awesome games. Um, I think that uh, in terms of the first person, that uh, Metroid Prime did a really good job of of using the first person to add more detail, because as a side scroller, you can only get so many directions, right? The eight main directions. Um, around Samus to kind of put in detail but then once you enter like a 3D realm you're able to like you said get find different weaknesses in bosses do like subtle subtle little things like subtle scans and like subtle shots that kind of like change the game and it really just adds that whole level extra level of immersion that uh, Metroid's so well known for doing yeah and even more so like with the power-ups that were there were so many different places they could hide power-ups because they weren't restricted to a two-dimensional map. Um, mm, that's true. You you ended up, there were so many different power-ups through that game. I think, uh, 
And by the end of the game, every missile power-up was five missiles. I think by the end of the game, I was at like 175 missiles or something like that. <laughs> and like 15 energy tanks or something ridiculous. Like it just... And like I said, my brother and I were going through with the guide. So we found every single energy tank and missile upgrade we could. Nothing. And they found really creative ways to hide them. Not, not just behind like fake walls or... Um, or, you know, invisible traps or something like that. There were really creative ways of hiding these, uh, these power-ups. Huh. And, and even, like, even the second game, Echoes, you know, while it doesn't, you know, crack my list only because Metroid Prime, in, you know, brought it to light for me, right. Echoes is an equally good and expansive game huh. upon Metroid Prime, which was already great. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so have you played Super Metroid? At all? The Super Nintendo one? Yes. yes. So how would you compare the two games, uh, Metroid Prime and Super Metroid? You know, I I don't think you necessarily can. I think you're kind of looking at apples and oranges hmm. a little bit there. Um, just because the, the gap in visuals and the gap in the world that was capable of being created was mm-hmm. so amazingly large that you kind of have to except the two games is in different realms. It's kind of like comparing Super Mario 64 and, mm-hmm. you know, any of the Super Marios that were released on NES. Like, it's... It, they're, they're different and great in their own rights, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so much so that I find it hard to, to compare them one-on-one. Okay, yeah, that's... Uh, they are completely uh, different styles of play when, you come, when it comes down to it. Yeah. Um, so, in terms of, uh, Metroid Prime, so, you were saying the controls and, like, the whole first-person thing, um, like, were, they, they did a good job with the game? Like, you said mm-hmm. you didn't have any problems with it? Pro- uh, you know, the, like I said, you know, the, getting used to the, the single joystick looking was initially a problem, mm-hmm. but once you learn to adapt to it, using your C-stick as opposed to uh, looking around and using it to switch visors or switch weapons mm-hmm. was amazingly helpful in the thick of battle. Um, like, I'll... And I only mention it because it's the game I'm playing the most, but, like, one of my biggest gripes, and, you know, we'll do this when we do the Destiny episode, <laughs> is that in order... The only way to get additional ammo outside of it falling from enemies is to use ammo synthesis. Um, you can only use one every five minutes and the only way to access it is through your inventory. So in the middle of a raid or, you know, uh, an instance or anything you're doing, you have to attempt to find a safe corner, open up your menu, scroll to the side, find the specific synthesis you want, hold down the X button for three seconds to use it, and then hope you didn't die in the interim. (laughs) So it's... It's a horrible thing to, like, you would assume that in so many games that you've played, you know, health potions or mana potions or anything can be hot, you know, hot fix to a specific uh, key binding. Right. So that you can use them quickly when you need to. And that's what the C-Stick really allowed you to do. And once you got over the fact that it wasn't a standard first-person shooter with look and and move with two joysticks, it was actually a really helpful tool. Mm, I see. Um, I think the only other gripe I would have had with the game is 
Um, and I, I feel bad because I don't want to spoil anything necessarily for you, but, um, basically after towards, once you get towards the end of the game, um, in order to unlock the next section, you have to find these relics Mm -hmm. that go on this big, um, uh, this big open plateau. Okay. And throughout the game, the way they push you through it is to find your new upgrades. And the way that works is they go, well, there's a mysterious energy reading in this portion of the map. And they put a big question mark on it, mm-hmm. and you find your way there. And then once you do that one, they do it again with a different portion of the map. Mm-hmm. Um, so they kind of like guide you through the game there. But with the relics, they don't do that. You're not guided to the relics at any particular point. So once you get your last upgrade, all the game does is it tells you there's a mysterious energy reading at the plateau. But mm-hmm. if you haven't collected the relics, which it's very unlikely you have because most of them are out of the way or in unique areas you wouldn't think to look, mm-hmm. you can't get to the next part of the game. Huh. So without, like, I, I will personally say, without the guide, I would not have been able to find these relics oh my and goodness. move on to the end phase of the game. <laughs> it's kind of like so making... Like it's like my, making you find like all the secret stuff, um, like all the hard secret hidden stuff, but then it's actually required to beat the game. Exactly, it's like it's like requiring Easter eggs in order to move forward. It's kind of <laughs> ridiculous. Um, and like when I get, when when you play it, I'm gonna give you my guide so that you can actually do it because I'll tell you right now, if you manage to figure it out, I'd be amazed. <laughs> oh man, yeah. No, no one I've ever talked to has been able to do this without looking up at least one of the relics. Yeah, I'm probably going to need a guide. I, I'm, I get lost in, like, giant ships quite easily. Yeah, and, and, and the map really, the, the world itself allows you to get lost very easily. So, <laughs> um, Yeah, I think uh, Metroid Prime is, like, a great example of taking a genre, which in this case is Metroidvania, um, which in the... Uh, in Super Metroid, it uh, did did its very best of kind of maximizing its genre, right? Of like being an open world, getting power ups, feeling powerful, and um, you know unlocking and doing all these crazy things as you progress as a character. And Metroid Prime did a good job of evolving that game by uh, not necessarily pushing its genre like past its limits, but adding a new style of depth to the game that is in a way kind of unrelated to it being part of the genre. And so in this case, being a first-person shooter added a lot of depth and a lot of detail to the game, which made its genre more prevalent, but didn't necessarily like make the ship like something um, revolutionary. Although it, it was really good, but it didn't make it like change. And I think as... Um, game developers or people who like want to see a game do well um having having that idea of making improving a game in different aspects and not necessarily by doing what it's already done but better is kind of a way of evolving the game and still keeping like its fan base um you know really satisfied with the experience so i have to commend metroid prime for doing for doing that yeah, you don't see that with a lot of games these days. Once they find their niche, they 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 tend to stay in them. So yeah, and milk it, <laughs> and milk it, milk it, and milk it, and then DLC, and then milk it some more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, oh man. Alright, Metroid Prime I approve of. Excellent top two so far. And we got the uh, the grand number one, Alex. The grand number one, I'm reaching for the best first-person shooter series of all time, in my opinion, which is mm. Halo. Oh. And I'm I'm reaching for Halo Reach. Halo, really? Halo Reach? Halo Reach, absolutely. Okay. So, Halo Reach did an amazing job after the conclusion of the standard games to bring it like people were worried that after Halo 3 the series was going to be done. Mhm. They're worried that it was just it was finished, there was nothing left to explore, there was nothing really worthy of doing it and as we saw with ODST, what was the point of having a game without Master Chief? Like he's the main storyline, he's what people are there to do. So why have a game without him? Mhm. And Halo Reach showed that we could have a game without the Master Chief and still have it be amazing. And it brought in... So while, while you didn't have to know all of the backstory associated with it, I'm mm-hmm. one of the people, um, along with my friend Evan, have, that have read the books and really enjoy the backstory that they brought in. Mm-hmm. And you're seeing that more now as we get really ready for Halo 5 and the online webisode called Hunt the Truth, they're digging more into the history of Master Chief, where he came from, the Spartan 2 program, the fact that they abducted small children, you know, this this big in-depth storyline that not a lot of people are familiar with. Mm-hmm. They only got, you know, bits and pieces of it through Easter eggs of the game. Mm-hmm. Um, and Reach was one of the most compelling stories that I read as part of those books. Like, huh. it... it the, the Fall of Reach is the first major book in the series that takes place before the events of the first game, before the Covenant show up, before any of that, almost. Mm-hmm. Um, and you learn all about the Master Chief's origins, the, the bio-augmentations, the processes that he went through, his team, and you know all of those people that now in Halo 5 you're actually going to get more introduced to. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the Reach, like as you saw in the game was like the military stronghold of uh, of of the UNSC of humankind. Like it was the biggest ship producing yard. It's where the biggest military training was and that's where Master Chief and his Spartans learned to become Spartans. That's where they trained. Okay. So it it held a specific uh, emotional connection for the characters not only as Noble 6 the team where you you were playing but as 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 having played from the perspective of Master Chief. Mm-hmm. Um, and just, they did a spectacular job of expanding upon, you know, Halo's always done a good job of changing weapons piece by piece as they go through games. You know, in the first game, the pistol was this insanely overpowered weapon. Yeah. <laughs> and then they beat it to death in the second game with the nerf stick and made it absolutely horrible. Right, um, right. And in Halo 3, they kind of... They kind of balanced it out a little bit. Uh-huh. Um, and then in Reach, they really brought it back to, not to prominence like where it was in the first game, but back to being a useful a useful weapon. And through the courses of the game, they did a really great job of introducing new uh, new alien classes for you to fight against, new new uh, AI. And the aside from the AI and the weapons and the gameplay, which really... You know, the gameplay is really what Bungie 
and 343 did so well. Mm-hmm. It's that that's the the draw of the game is it's just for me it's the perfect shooter. It's just like you get you can there's so many things about it you can customize. The weapons are variable enough where no matter what type of shooter you are, you can play that type. If you're a close-up person, there are shotguns and battle rifles for you to enjoy. If you're a distance person, there are single or three-round burst assault rifles and sniper rifles for you to enjoy. There's just there's there's such a plethora of weapons, not only human but covenant also. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and then just because the story of Reach was so expansive and you know it, it covered the destruction of a planet like it, it was huge and and the ending of the game was like you knew if you had read the books you knew how the story had to end mm-hmm. and if you had read anything about the game before it came out and the fact that it was a prequel technically and things like that you you knew that the, the story had to end poorly mm-hmm. and for them to do that was you know it, it broke the mold you know you were so used to this master chief the guy that overcomes unbelievable odds to to save the day and move on to the next major mm-hmm. threat. But in this game you were sort of fighting towards your impending doom. It was really <laughs> it, it was really a different way of playing Halo. Huh. And then this game really got the online portion of it right. As much as I these days despise PvP when it comes to first person shooters because people find the one niche way to kill you, and everybody does it, and everybody gloms onto it, mm-hmm. and there's no way to survive if you don't do it. Right. Um, which, which I really that that's an aspect of PvP I really don't enjoy. Um, they got the online play right. Like they let you, they set up all of their different game types. You know, capture the flag, big team battles, SWAT, which was always our personal favorite. <laughs> um, and or SWAT as my friends always called it, um, and they just really did a good job of letting you pick the game type for online that you wanted to do, bring people with you, bring your own team, meet up with a different team, and then they had a rank up system too, where you know it, it was it was a rank up system strictly in title, but it was a rank up system nonetheless. So there was at least a sense of accomplishment in some respects mm-hmm. when it came to online play, which for a lot of games like. In the early in the earlier days, it was simply a leaderboard or the right to say that I was better than you. That was pretty much all you had. Right. Um, and so for me, Reach kind of you know brought together an amazing story, great online play, mm-hmm. and again, as a person who had read everything, brought everything together before they moved on to the next phase of the game when Halo Four came out. Um, they really, you know, even though it was technically a prequel and sort of not wrapping things up, but going backwards, it really sort of put a bow on what Bungie had left the game with. Because after that, they were done. They didn't participate in Halo 4. They were moving on to do Destiny. Right, Right. Um, so it was really sort of Bungie's last hurrah. And I really think they perfected it. They did an amazing job with that game. Yeah, um, I think ooh, there's so much to say about Halo. Um, all right, first of all, Halo Halo One came out in 2001, and the Halo Reach, which is what Alex is talking about, is in 2010. And so Halo's been kind of coming out over the years, 
and it was developed by Bungie until Halo Reach, where uh, 343 Industries took over the Halo franchise after that and made Halo 4 and Halo 5, right? They're going to make Halo 5? 343? Yeah. 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 And so um, Halo was always uh, an Xbox game for the most part. And so I personally... Yeah, I personally uh, never had too much Halo exposure. Like, I've always played it with my friends, and, like, my roommates in college had it, so I would kind of play with them. But um, I never really, like, owned the game and, like, you know, really took the time to play it solo and stuff. But despite that fact, I would have to say that the Halo combat, um, which, for, for those of you who don't know, it's based on having a shield and then having health. And if your shield gets um, gets damaged, it'll, like, replenish over time. But your health will permanently, you know, be damaged until you die. And the way the game runs with that health system and the pace of how you jump, and it's kind of, like, floaty, and the speed of your movement, it really, I would say, in a sense, perfected the, the first-person shooter pace. Because in Counter-Strike... Like, it's Counter-Strike is great, and it's really fun, but there's some times where, you know, you pop pop around a corner, and then you're instantly dead. And while it's cool to be the one that kills someone else that way, it kind of, um, like, takes away a lot of the first-person shooter fun because, you know, you, you didn't have any time to react, right? You just go around a corner and die. But Halo, because of the shield system and the pacing of the game, there's always, like, at least, like, a three-to-five-second three fight and it really just, like, adds to, like, the pace and, like, feeling like you're really involved in the combat all the time. And um, that's what I really enjoyed about Halo was kind of, like, the way the the first-person shooter, like, pacing and stuff uh, pans out in that game. Yeah, I mean, and even if you look at the name of the first game, it was Combat Evolved. Like, it was really the first, the first of its type to try uh, a system like that and do it well. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, I gotta ask, and I, I commend you for choosing Halo Reach. I really feel like you, because you have such in-depth knowledge of the Halo story, <laughs> um, choosing Halo Reach kind of really shows you the your loyalty to the single player and, like, the in-depth, um, whatever that goes behind it, as, lo- as well as the, um, the online combat. But I gotta ask, how do you compare... Halo Reach to Halo 2 in terms of multiplayer? Halo 2 was an anomaly just because they did that uh, that vertical split screen that was was so horrendous. (laughs) People just didn't know what to make of it. It made no sense at all as to why they did it. Um, (laughs) And that was when they first introduced um, dual wielding. And I remember because the first game, it didn't exist. The second game, it did. Halo 3, it disappeared. And then Reach, they brought it back again. Right. It was, right. This, it was this weird like novelty. It, it was, it's kind of like Mario Kart, how they have these one-off novelties that they just have for one game and then disappear all over again. Double dash. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it... The, it was such a curveball because it had such lofty expectations. Mm-hmm. You know, Halo had 
Halo had broken the mold. It had it had set a new standard, kind of like WoW did for MMOs. It set a standard for first-person shooters. Yeah. And when you have, I mean, this was the game that basically made Xbox. If this game doesn't come out, my money is that Xbox never makes it past the first console. Yeah. Yep. Like, uh, yep. I 100% agree on that. People bought Xbox for this game. It was that good. <laughs> um, and to to have to worry about all of those expectations going into Halo 2 was like w- like I remember this was like the the first with the exception of World of Warcraft this was one of the first major console games that like I went to a midnight release for like I had to have this game the night it came out because they had been teasing it for for months on end and giving you like I remember they showed you that um that cinematic where Master Chief rode the bomb out of the airlock into the into the Covenant ship, like oh, yeah, yeah. that was the most badass thing in the world. <laughs> and I I felt that it had it had so much to live up to that it almost let down in certain areas. Mm. So like like I said, certain weapons got overly nerfed, like the pistol. Right. Um. They they introduced um a few of the missions had space combat where you were jumping you know outside of a space station or something like that and. And while a good idea, um, I didn't think it was really necessary. Um, and, and and something you learn from from reading the books is that the Spartans hate zero G combat. They mm-hmm. despise it because they lose. Like their biggest edge is that they're fast, they're mobile, they're you know they're superhuman. And when you put them in zero G, they lose that edge. Mm-hmm. And so for me, when I stepped out of an airlock on i think it was the first major mission of the game i felt like master chief was no longer this you know seven foot tall hulking iron indestructible mass of death like i i lost that that feeling that he he was the hero and that he could die because Mm. the second i walked out there i was like this is the spartans kryptonite right right they they hate this (laughs) And again, maybe that's just something for from me having read the books, but it was, it, you know, it was a personal feeling on the game. Mm. Um, but, you know, and the, uh, the Banshee was something else that they had a hard time with in the second game. Um, they, they really wanted to introduce it, and because you had to fight against it in the first game, but you couldn't, I don't think you could fly it in the first game, if I remember. No, I don't think so. Um, and they wanted to give you that, that option. But the Banshee became this horrible, uh, like, burden that you needed to use in certain missions, but just didn't handle well. It was, the controls were unintuitive at times. It was, it was really awkward. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and, and they introduced the, the Wraith tank in that game, too. Um, like, there were just, there were so many things in the first game that made you want more, and they tried to deliver on everything, and I think ended up under delivering on too much. Okay, I see. Um, so you would say in the Halo franchise, you are the most involved in its kind of like campaign single player experience, right? Yeah. Yeah. Which, um, by the way, if you guys haven't played single player, I played through Halo 1 and 2 with my friend, and I've had a blast with them. Like, you, I was very um pleasantly surprised with how fun an fps campaign could be because uh 
yeah, Halo. I would say Goldeneye set like kind of the groundwork for how FPSs are yeah. today, but Halo was the one that kind of like perfected everything. It really optimized all the things that um, FPSs were at the time and still today um, into kind of like the perfect like FPS mold. And I would say, um, yeah, Halo is probably the closest to that um, in terms of most of the franchises. Um, but yeah, those, uh, those are Alex's top three. Um, oh, I'm sticking to them. <laughs> yeah. Um, we got, uh, Halo and then, um, Metroid Prime and World of Warcraft, which are, I, I really like your top three because they are, they are quite different in terms of, <laughs> in terms of games. But, uh, I mean, those are three extremely solid titles. So, um. Yeah, you know, I, 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 I racked my brain a little bit trying to, um, I was heavily considering uh, other Blizzard games, Diablo and StarCraft. Mm, nice. Um, while, but while I love them, and I do, you know, in, in the lulls where Destiny becomes boring, I do go back to Diablo and start playing it again, because like the second Destiny's new content becomes repetitive... Diablo seems to time it perfectly and comes out with a new patch. <laughs> so, like I, I know my friends and I will start playing Diablo again because Destiny's getting a little boring. Um, but it, it, it didn't resonate with me the same way that WoW did. And while I love StarCraft and it has an amazing story and it is like it is the RTS game to play in it my is. opinion. Yep. Um, again, it's gone. It's gone a little too long in between expansions. Mm-hmm. And unless you are amazing at PvP, um, the game's replayability, uh, unless you want to like go for uh, go for achievements on super difficult modes, like my, my brother does. He's a goddamn just absolute freak when it comes to that. <laughs> um, your your only avenue to continue to play the game is PvP. Right. And unfortunately. PvP in Star in StarCraft is cut to particular molds. There's particular strategies and particular ways of winning, and unless you've practiced them like a madman, you'll get destroyed very quickly. Right. It's an incredibly uh, mechanical, yeah, game. It, re- it requires unbelievable uh, your unbelievable ability to manage all of your different buildings and resources simultaneously, and it's just when when I see the pros play, I'm just baffled. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. Yeah. <laughs> Um, all right, well, those, uh, yeah, so those were your top three, uh, great choices, um, and, yeah, thanks so much for being on the show, Alex. Of course, I can't wait for the Destiny episode so I can rip it to shreds. <laughs> yeah, that will be coming soon to you guys, folks, but for now, we are heading out. Have a good night, guys. <laughs>